Welcome to the December 27th, 21 edition of Digging Out. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh. This program sets out to offer means for getting us through November 3rd, 2020, January 6th, 21, and then on to when we get to see the next curtain raising at Name Your Favorite Theater Performing Arts Center, as we can collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, and beyond. My guest today is Richard Chang, Arts and Culture Senior Editor at The Voice of OC, to offer a cultural map of opportunities and workarounds during the pandemic and possibly a look beyond. Richard is also a journalism instructor at Cal State Long Beach and Orange Coast College as well. He served as a journalism instructor and a faculty advisor for the Poly Post at Cal Poly Pomona. Richard's been an editor reporter at a number of daily and weekly publications, including the LA Weekly, The Journal, a national magazine and website that covers technology and K through 12 education, Premier OC, a performing and visual arts magazine published by Orange Coast Magazine, Orange County Register, the Santa Fe New Mexican, and an entertainment and pop culture reporter at the Bakersfield Californian. His journalist teaching includes Cal Poly Pomona, UCLA, Glendale Community College, and Cal State Fullerton. Over the past few years, he's contributed to the LA Times, Orange County, Voice of OC, The Daily Piot, the Claire Trevor School of the Arts Connect Magazine, Modern Painters, ArtInfo.com, Art Plus Auction, Coast Magazine, Laguna Beach Magazine, Newport Beach Magazine, Montage Magazine, Omni Escapes, UCI's Connect Magazine, Art Limited, Art Voices Magazine, Chapman Magazine, Bespoke Concierge, The Laguna Beach Independent, Art News, Asian Week, Tribal College Journal, and the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Richard's board service includes the Asian American Journalists Association, Los Angeles Chapter, and the Orange County Press Club. Oh, and did I not mention that Richard, during the aughts, DJed a show right here on KUCI. It was called The Utslan Warrior. Richard comes from his home office in Anaheim Hills. Welcome to Digging Out, Richard Tang. Thank you, Claudia, and thank you for that kind introduction. I hope the listening audience wasn't bored with all the <laughs> places that I've had to show my work. But um, yeah, I appreciate being back on KUCI. It's been, it's been a little while, and I have fond memories of, of, of working at the station. Well, thank you. Well, we need to mention all those because journalism is, there's a lot of hustle necessary to be covering all your bills. But I'm going to keep all that in there. So typically, digging outs explored political themes, but today it's all about entertainment, the arts and culture, which have been something of a glue, a lifeline for getting through this pandemic, which of course, it's still underway. So the debris folks, it's continue to pile up. So let's begin, Richard, with some of your very general takes. Could you talk about what it's been like to cover audiences adjusting physically to the sort of the cultural events and the trends of all that adjustment? And you've been doing, having to do it remotely yourself. Yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of a big topic. And, you know, it's changed as this pandemic has changed on us. You know, as many different waves as we've had is the different types of scenarios we've had as far as, you know, audiences that you mentioned. A lot of stuff, you know, during the, the depths of the pandemic has been remote, just like 
uh, a lot of meetings have been. There have been theatrical productions that have occurred online with audiences listening in through Zoom or other, you know, video services. There have been online art exhibitions. You know, there's been online dance. And, and actually, I wrote a story for um, UCI's Connect magazine on how dance professors were teaching students and they were learning dance moves at home, you know, in very unconventional environments that did not have, you know, proper springboards and whatnot. Some people were bumping into things in their kitchen as they were trying to learn dance. One, uh, I guess, area that seems to have um, done okay is is the art museum uh, because uh, they need to uh, preserve works that HVAC and air systems are, are very robust. They have been, you know, for just to the preservation of art. And people socially distance anyways, you know, in, in art museums, you don't, you don't, you know, you allow for people their space, even before this pandemic. And you don't get too close to other people. It's just not considered proper behavior. I mean, unless it's a really crowded opening. So, you know, there was a German study that said that art museums are among the most, the safest public environments in, in the world as far as, um, you know, during this pandemic. And the instances of transmission are the lowest of any public environment in an art museum. So, um, you know, they've been able to sort of ride through, except for, you know, when we had very uh, strict lockdowns here in California and, and nationwide, when everything had to close, they've been able to sort of open and they're still open. And, you know, people wear masks, of course. And, you know, it's it, that I'd say for audiences, that's been one of the bright lights that they've been able, you've been able to go to an art museum, even, you know, while theatrical productions have been canceled or, or postponed, the art museum is still open. So I think that that's something that local audiences have been able to, to go to, to answer your question. So I, I want to, this makes me think of all of the ingenious arrangements that we've seen. And I'm moving to the early part of the pandemic where the Metropolitan Opera had that multi-hour production of going hopping time zones. I don't know if you saw that, Richard. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but it sounds familiar. So the, what it did, we, we got to see A-list opera performers in their own homes. And boy, did some of us ogle over like, what, you know, what's it look like? What do they live what, you know, in their rooms? But so there was a kind of a personal aspect to watching them, uh, let's say a man and wife kind of, uh, pairing and performing, and you could there, there was a kind of an informal side, and then they launch into it. And it was very it was touching. But the Pacific Northwest Ballet, they mastered it like nobody else. I don't know if you saw any of those. I mean, I, I was lucky to be gifted a season subscription, and I was sort of slow to catch on to how I was supposed to catch them when the streaming was open. But uh, had you heard about that? I mean, that they were given high marks nationally for pulling off some very creative ways of getting through a virtual performance. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I hadn't heard about that specifically, but there've been a lot of other groups, organizations, orchestras that have been doing similar things and, you know, thinking of ingenious ways to combine sound. You know, there is a, an issue with, if you're on Zoom and, and you're uh, far away, there's there's an issue with uh, synchronicity. You, you know, you it's really difficult to get, 
instruments to play together if you're not near each other. If you're, you know, if there's a certain distance, then it's almost impossible. And there's actually a, a UCI professor named Michael Dessen who um, utilizes a, I guess, a program called Jack Trip that reduces the the time lapse significantly so that performers can play together, even if they're 500 miles away. So um, anyways, but yeah, there's the th maybe another bright spot is that through technology, we've been able to bridge distances. And like you said, go into people's homes and bring on, you know, I've been able to interview people through Zoom that I don't know if I would be able to interview them over the phone. So it's kind of, it's an interesting time for sure. It's an interesting time. Absolutely. So I want to now chip into how people's tastes may have been affected throughout the pandemic, including your own taste. I've had some people say, well, you know, I'm stopped. I don't watch Stephen Colbert anymore because it's just, it's not landing properly. I don't like the way he is at his home or there's a particular national public radio Saturday late morning program. And it just sounded off to me. And I stopped listening. I used to be a faithful listener to that show and I stopped listening. So I don't know if you have your own experiences, Richard, of some things sound good or look good to you, but not right now. And new things have, uh, look and sound better to you. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure um, what all of my answers might be um, for that, but you know, um, I guess, you know, one of my, um, my background, I've been writing about visual art for a long time, and I've always been a little hesitant to, I mean, art is meant to be seen in person, but during this time when we couldn't go to things in person, we were forced to look at art on our computer screens. And I, I think I kind of adapted a little bit to that. I'm a pretty devout listener to NPR, so I don't, you know, I, I can kind of relate to what that person was saying about not listening to certain programs, but they, but they've adjusted too. you know, like there's a show called wait, wait, don't tell me. And you know, they, they had to go virtual and it was, you know, no audience. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of funny. I always thought it was funny. Honestly, the, um, there are a couple of YouTube shows that I've been watching that I never would have watched if there wasn't a pandemic, you know, because I'm, I'm at home and I'm, I'm watching a little bit more, you know, YouTube series and, um, it, you know, they're funny and they have like some, some drama and some uh, just uh, some awkward moments that are kind of addictive. You know, I, I haven't, I'm not really a big streamer. I, 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 I did watch um, Squid Game and I did really like that, but um, I guess I've been reading a little bit more, which is good. But I, you know, I don't know. I've just been keeping busy too. You know, it's not, I read a couple of articles about, wow, we have all this free time now and now I'm bored. I don't know where that is coming from. I mean, I, I still have to do like, you know, a lot of journalists, a lot of work and a, a lot of freelance and keeping up with the teaching and the grading. And so, you know, it's like, um, I've been busy just like pre-pandemic. Right. I think all journalists, there was never any let up and, we all at KUCI, we adjusted to producing everything out of our homes, nothing live. And so it took an inordinate amount of extra time. And my listeners have heard me 
wring my hands out. And I, I don't do it on a regular basis, but they've heard this before from me. But yeah. so the, the windfall of time, I don't know how people got that. They maybe they saved it from not commuting and I'm not sure what else, but it, it journalists have to keep tracking what's going on and that doesn't slow down. So that voracious consumption of current events and culture and all that never let up. So I certainly relate to that. So for those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. My guest is Richard Chang, arts and culture senior editor at The Voice of OC and lecturer in journalism on several local college campuses. So let's talk a bit about the strengths of institutions, mainly locally, maybe you want to have some others in mind, but the, their ability to survive. And in one of your publications, you've talked about the county's largest arts organization, the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts, they received a whopping uh, rescue package of $10 million. And yeah. uh, that's, it's not, I mean, they've always prided themselves on being a privately funded enterprise, but that was, uh, and no, no comment was coming from the C-suite on that. But you want to talk about Sagerstrom and other institutions' ability to survive, and, and uh, maybe there's some particular ones that, uh, that had to fold that are of concern. Yeah, well, you mentioned Sagerstrom and they did get significant PPP loans. We should mention though that they, you know, they, a lot of organizations did have to lay off people and reduce staff. And I think Sagerstrom had to cut 63% of its staff prior wow. to their loans. So that's, that's a, big, a big hit for them. You know, the, we, what else do we have? We have the Irvine Barclay Theater. We've got... Uh, the individual organizations like Pacific Symphony and all these groups, Orange County Museum of Art, the Bowers Museum, they all applied for and got loans federally. I think, you know, for a lot of groups, the loans and grants were a lifesaver to get through all this. You know, Sagerstrom, you know, we know them from a previous era of not accepting any federal or government money, but I think their thinking on that has evolved with the times, uh, you know, the old guard is slowly, slowly disappearing over there. And, and I think there's a new generation of people who realize that, you know, we can't get through this unless we accept some of the PPP loans. It's just a matter of survival. I think that's been the case for a lot of organizations. Irvine Barkley, I know they got some federal grants and loans. Uh, the list is pretty long. We're going to Playhouse. I don't see how both organizations and individuals have been able to get through this without a little bit of support. Well, I think let's, let's also acknowledge the Sagerstrom Center is a real there there in the middle of Orange County. And it's actively trying to bring in a very democratic with a little D audience of all kinds of performances, free performances, ticket holder performances. So it's, it's a real center. And I think it, there is an inevitable appropriateness that there is public funding to acknowledge it is a public space. And the museum that is being built in that last open space parcel inside there is yeah. going to make it even more of a center for the whole public to be enjoying. Yeah. So again, I think they're thinking, uh, the thinking that they're not, accept they don't want to accept any government money that that's dissipating. You know, I mean, even when they said that back in the early 2000s, they, they were 
financing the construction of the Rene and Henry Section Concert Hall through a bond program, which is, you know, they, it was a tax-free bond program, which that's, that's a federal program. It's not, you know, the, the, it wasn't. So, you know, even when they were saying they weren't really accepting federal money, they, they kind of were. So it's kind of like, a, you know, the old, it, as Orange County has evolved from, you know, a red county conservative Republican where Republicans go to die, as Reagan once said, you know, we're kind of a purple county. In fact, I think there are more uh, registered Democrats in Orange County now than, than Republicans. So, you know, just as Orange County itself has evolved and changed, I think the center, previously the Orange County Performing Arts Center, now Sagerstrom Center, has also evolved. And, you know, the Casey Ritz is the the new president over there, and he's a pretty progressive guy. So, you know, it's not it's not the center that some folks may have grown up with. And the other kind of a scrappy move pre-pandemic, but was signaling that, that they're there, is the collaboration, I love bringing this up, of the Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, with the Sagerstrom front office to the C-suite to have a, an early voting registration mobile unit outside of where Hamilton was being performed. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I actually had not heard about that, but I think that's 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 great. Why not? But that yeah. So there's that's confirmation of that. So what about the first Saturdays in Santa Ana and other venues like that? That I know Laguna used to have their first Thursday of the month. But how have those been? Um, that they're sort of trying to open up, but I'm I'm not sure where we are now with the the latest variant of COVID. But what yeah. have you seen over the pandemic? changing and what's been surviving with the first Saturdays in the Arts Village in Santa Ana, among other places. Yeah, well, it was on hold. It was suspended for a while during the depths of the pandemic, um, but they brought it back. And uh, just I think it was back in September, they they revived it. And it and it's every first Saturday is still going on. You know, you know, we're hitting a new surge or wave now with Omicron. And it's that's brought up a bunch of question marks for everyone. But so I don't know how it's going to do in the, you know, the current situation. I'm suspecting that not as many people will want to go out <laughs> um, and mingle in the public. Laguna Beach also has brought back its first Thursdays. And I know that, you know, Fullerton and other towns have also experimented with art walks. I think just I'm talking about right now, I think things are a little tenuous they seem like i'm not sure if people really really want to go out and mingle right now you know it might change in a few months when when the weather gets warmer and this wave has passed you know there have been times just within the past two years where we thought oh things are clearing up again it's it's okay to go out there have been like performances where people were jubilant you know and just like oh hey it's gone now we can celebrate again and then we're hit with, with another wave so I think they'll they'll survive, but right now is probably not the best time to be touting the art walks, you know. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just been within recent memory that a lot of these venues have opened up again to the public. So I think people are a little bit leery, you know. Even even families and friends right right now are a little bit hesitant to get together. And we're right on the cusp of Christmas. No, it's right. changing day to day right now. What people are willing to risk in terms of familiar homeowner sorts of settings. So that's, that's a, that's a nanocultural kind of thing. Yeah. So um, 
I, I want to talk, I want to get us back to sort of, we're talking kind of hybrid socializing at homes and all during the holidays. But I want to talk a bit about some of those hybrid performances, the Zoom plays. And I want to give a shout out to Jane Page, who produced, she directed Human Error, both with professional actors with the North Coast Repertory Theater from San Diego County. And then she had students do that. And it was all, you could sort of see how the Zoom plays were kind of changing. And uh, you talked about earlier about how you were covering dance performers who are running into some kitchen equipment when they're doing some rehearsals and training at home. But uh, Jane Page had to direct students that were, they were learning how to set up their sets where they were performing in their frame in the Zoom plays that, you know, they had to, they had to do everything on their own, their own lighting and clearing certain spaces and all that kind of a thing. But I, I wanted to mention how interestingly she was able to do human error with the professional actors really early on. And what I want to bring up with you, Richard, is that it was an uncanny powerful feature of Zoom where the human error, the storyline, I'm not going to go into, but there are, it's, it's just four actors that are, they know each other because there was a mistake in implanting a fertilized egg in the wrong woman. That, that's the whole, that's the storyline. So you have four actors that are dealing with that conundrum. And there's a point where in the Zoom section, at the Zoom play, the two women are trying, they're, they're getting up close to each other, but they're both looking into the screen, the Zoom screen. And it was like, I still get goosebumps thinking about that. So I don't know if that long off-ramp I took for my take here, Richard, if there is a kind of a goosebump raising where you thought, wow, that Zoom production really created something you would not have gotten anywhere else. Well, you know, I think about, you make me think about um, the series that was put on by a couple of Santa Ana residents, Victor Payan and Sandra Sarmiento, also known as Pocha Pena. They did a series called Democracy in America, and they invited some very talented guests from from Culture Clash to uh, Guillermo Gomez Pena to uh, Elvez, who's a sort of a Latino Mexican Elvis, um, to perform and to have um, discussion sessions with people who are interested. Originally, this was supposed to be a, a, a live thing. And, um, you know, they were going to be traveling to different venues to do it. But because of the pandemic, everyone was stuck at home. I wound up looking forward to these Friday evenings online and listening to great performers, great artists up close and personal in their homes and giving performances and talking to people and being able to ask them questions. You know, I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to go to a venue with a live audience and be able to ask a performer questions, you know, and um, on top of that, it was all free. I thought that was pretty cool, you know? So yeah, there's some silver linings for sure. You know, I can't wait till this is all over. We can all get back to, you know, being, living people outside of our, outside of our sweats and, and PJs and outside of our home offices and be able to get out there and see the world again. But I, you know, I, I think I, just like we've all had to just deal with it, roll with it and 
there's been some creative production during this time too. Very. And I, I guess one production I remember from Echo Park, it was, I saw the taped version and then I saw her do, she did this all in her own home, which she had housemates and including her spouse and, uh, but, and just the dog zoom bombing was kind of a, it was a nice touch there as a, it was kind of a high wire act of a performance of the, the main character, but the dog was a nice touch, a little comic relief there. For those of you who've just joined us, this is Digging Out, and my guest is Richard Chang. He's arts and culture senior editor at The Voice of OC, and he also lectures in journalism on several local college campuses. So even though graphic fine arts are not considered multi-multi-dimensional, it still looks flat when it's projected on a screen. And I, I'm, you were talking about it's safe to be in a museum more than any other kinds of cultural venues. But don't you agree, Richard, that framed art has a texture that is only really vivid when you're seeing it in real life and not remotely through screens? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I've been asked before to review work that was online or just through a catalog, and I actually refuse to do it. I think it's a different experience when you go see something in person where you can see the dimension of the paint, the, you know, impasto, the paint, you know. Even art photographs. Not, yeah. Art is not just a two-dimensional thing, too. You know, you have sculpture, installation. You know, to be able to see art laid out in the context of other works, I think, is important. The physicality of walking through space to see art, I think, is, is an important experience. You know, I've missed it to a certain degree during this pandemic when we weren't weren't able to go out. But as we've talked about before, you know, it's even though we have a, a crazy variant out there, it's still considered very safe to go to a museum that is uh, very, um, I guess, the filter, the air is filtered very well. People naturally socially distance anyways. Everyone's wearing masks. There are hand sanitizers everywhere. I've never felt unsafe in a museum. So I just... Thought I'd throw that out there. So and, but know, they may be beholden, though, to protocols that are trying to reinforce social distancing, and they may have to follow yeah. the, the larger sweep of, of regulating public yeah. gatherings. So well, that you know, everything is changing you know, day by day what what we can and cannot do. So, you know, so, I just I just heard uh, read that um, you know there's the Broad Museum in LA, which a lot of people like to go to. It's free, but you need to make reservations. They were getting ready to open up their the Infinity and Mirrored Room, which is a popular installation by a, a Japanese um, artist. And I just read today that they're postponing the reopening of that because of, because of the variant. So it's you know everything is changing. Just just like situations are evolving daily, things are changing in the arts too. So I think, and also along with the graphic arts, that some of the the heavy collective I think you've covered with Bud Herrera. And Kimberly Duran, you want to talk about they're they're taking they're very opportunistic in using a canvas outdoors that people can experience. Yeah, well, they're a Santa Ana couple, um, each talented artist in their in their own right, and they do murals and um, they're very socially active and socially aware. And if you ever go down to Santa Ana, I guess both in the Artist Village and in the on the East End which is in Santa Ana is considered kind of 
that's that's kind of where the scene is shifting to the east end actually the artist village is kind of it's becoming a little bit of old hat i mean a little no gentrified in a way too kind of yeah i mean no offense to anyone who who lives and operates down there and i mad respect for grand central art center santora building and and oka but you know trends change and people's tastes change the east end is getting a little more attention and if you walk around there you'll see their murals everywhere they're in the parking lot on on bush street uh i think it's bush and third you know they've got a studio up there they they get um commissions if you go to the main place mall they've got murals up there they're painting everywhere you know like you drive around Santa Ana, you'll just see, see some of their work. Um, yeah, they're, you know, they're talented. If you, I, I did a, a story in Voice of OC where they're keen to social movements. And, you know, after George Floyd, the Kimberly, who's one of the members of the Heavy Collective, did a piece on George Floyd, which I think is worth checking out. But yeah, they're talented. They're, you know, I think it's hard to be just like, it's a challenge to be a freelance writer these days. It's hard to be sort of a freelance artist. You got to keep busy and keep working and keep, keep those gigs going. It's not as local as what you're covering, but it's a, a kind of the point of where the theme that you pick up in your article about creating new spaces for quote, as they say, for things to happen. And it's just a way of promoting the idea. And I'm sure you'd sign on to this, Richard, is just going out, I went to a Day of the Dead at Boyle Heights, a celebration this year that was outdoors. There was a street that was blocked off and I had never heard of, but I'm sure you've heard of Robert Vargas's work, correct? Yeah. Uh-huh, I know Robert Vargas. I did, a, I did a cover story on him for LA Weekly. Okay, so he, there he was just finding the one of the Day of the Dead paint. They were mainly young subjects, young girls. Uh-huh. And he was... With, and he had his team with him. It was like, it was a group effort. And he was just mastering, capturing them with simply black and white kinds of uh, paints and yeah. inks and things like that. And I guess he is building in, in the theme we were talking about creating new spaces for things to happen. He has, I guess, reputedly the, one of the largest murals in the world going on in the commission downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, that's, that's what he says. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, as a journalist, I'm a little skeptical when people say it's the biggest or largest or, or the only of something, you know, because it's a pretty big world, but it's an impressive, it's a Pershing square. It's a pretty impressive mural. And uh, one of the, I guess the focus or foci of the piece is a, a Tongva girl in native dress, which is, it's pretty cool. There's, um, if you ever make it out there to Pershing square, just look up and you'll see it. It's pretty big. I think that what he's saying is that the it's the biggest mural done by a single person. That's right, it. right. That's a distinction. Yes. Yeah. So you know, it's 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 developing. He's been working on it for a while, but yeah, it's worth. I think it's worth checking out. Uh, this is a really good time to pivot to representation in the arts. We have some real tectonic plates shifting politically, culturally. And I want to say pedagogically, we're, we're rethinking the kinds of American history lessons we've gotten. And so I'd like for you as an identified Asian American man in Orange County, the extent to which representation 
in fine arts is changing. If you want to say locally and, and if you want to head out to, into other directions, but if you would speak to that really general question I lay at your feet, Richard. Well, yeah, it's a big, it's, it's, it's kind of a big topic, but um, I think, you know, this is an issue in American history, not just within, you know, since the pandemic, but I think, I think uh, since the, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I think people have decided enough is enough and um, we're not going to stay silent anymore. I think we saw, I wrote a story in the in Voice of OC about right after that, there were movements and petitions to um, change names of, of places in, in Orange County and and, you know, there's been, for instance, there's the Plumber Auditorium in, in, in Fullerton, and there's been a little bit of a movement to get the name Plumber off of there because he was a, a known member of the KKK. But after George Floyd, it seemed like the, the tide had shifted and a, a young woman who um, lives in Fullerton and would, you know, in high school would perform it and see performances at Plumber Auditorium, started a change.org, I guess, um, campaign to get the name off of Plummer. And, and within a couple of weeks of George Floyd, the name was taken off. It's actually taken off on Juneteenth. Um, likewise, you know, there was a, there's an elementary school in, in Brea. Yeah, I think it's called, uh, it was called Fanning Elementary. It was formerly called uh, William E. Fanning Elementary School. And then the, there was a movement to get the name Fanning off of there because he was another member of the KKK. And it, they changed it to try and assuage people who were upset to Fanning Academy of Science and Technology. That wasn't enough. A graduate of Brea Olinda High School wrote a petition on change.org to get the Fanning name off. And within a couple of weeks, it was, it was taken off. So, you know, I, those are just two instances of this sea change, I think, that's been occurring. I wrote a piece on writers of color in, in Orange County that um, I, I just think that since I think George Floyd is kind of one of these touchdown moments, but it's not just that incident. I mean, you know, there's, there's, that's one incident in many incidences every year that happen. But I just think that it's, especially in Orange County, where we've also had a demographic shift, where technically, according to the census, uh, whites are no longer the majority and people of color are actually in the majority it's one of the, we're now a so-called majority minority county. I don't really like that term because it's, it's kind of. There's a default in there. Yeah. Right. You're, you're assuming that just because you're a person who's not white, that you're a minority when you're not a minority anymore, you're part of the majority anyway. But because of that demographic shift, I think there's been also a change in culturally in Orange County and, um, I think people are recognizing that and, and are speaking out. And um, I just think, you know, like, I'll give you another instance where you can see this sort of tangibly. We've got some film festivals in Orange County. There's the Newport Beach Film Festival. Uh, there's the OC Film Fiesta and the Viet Film Fest. I wrote a story back in October about these film festivals happening all at the same time in October. And, um, if anyone listening has gone to the Newport Beach Film Festival, you know that they're 
they're always presenting different programs, which are, I don't want to say cater, but are cognizant of different communities out there. They've got this past year, they had a, a Korean film, a Vietnamese film, a Chinese film, a Japanese film, Latin American films. I think they're pretty, I hate to use this term, but they're pretty woke as far as that's concerned. The OC Film Fiesta had a strong Latino offerings and some Asian stuff. And of course, the Viet Film Fest, which has been going on now for, I guess they, they've got 11 of, they just presented their 11th edition of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's some really great films that are created by both Vietnamese from Vietnam and Vietnamese Americans who are living here in Orange County and also in the States. And they were able to um, present their films to audiences at home, you know, via screenings at home, which I thought was pretty cool. That was another way that local groups were able to adapt during this pandemic time. So kudos to the, uh, they're the Vietnamese American Arts and Letters Association, VALA, that puts on the Vietnam Film Fest. Also, I mentioned the OC Film Fiesta and the Newport Beach Film Festival. Well, it was kind of stunning that the South Coast Rep opened up their first live performance since the pandemic stay in place orders with a a shot rang out, a one man play that sort of, it seemed not to recognize the moment we were in. I don't know if you had any reactions to that, that uh, we're not burning any bridges here, folks, but I just, it it came to me as a kind of a, a stunning comment in uh, where there were a lot more, there were so many other ways to maybe handle that moment of reopening South Coast Rep. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can kind of agree with you there, Claudia. When I saw that, I was a little, I, I too questioned that a, a bit. I mean, all respect to South Coast Rep over the years, I've seen a lot of great productions there, including, you know, Las Posadas, uh, a, a Latino a holiday production, which I love. I've seen some great Asian American productions there, but I, I kind of agree with you. I thought for the artistic director to do a one man play was for, you know, as their first production out of the pandemic was a little self-indulgent. I mean, my, my colleague at voice of OC reviewed it interviewed uh, is it david ivers i did too at, during the time it was running yeah and you know i mean i i we we ran the stories and we ran the the review and i think he enjoyed the production personally though i thought it was a little it it, it was a little tone deaf as far as what the collective of people here in orange county and in in america were thinking at the time but you know, it's a free country. It's a freedom of expression. That's I, 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 I'll grant them that. But I thought it was a little off mark as far as what socially people were thinking. I, and again, I thought it was a little self indulgent for the the artistic director instead of going out there and exploring what he could put together and put on a stage to do a one man play. You know, about you know angsty white, you know middle aged conundrums. You know, I mean. I don't know. I wasn't that interested, but some people were. So, but the Met, I mean, we, I understand that South Coast Rep was trying to go low liability, one individual performing safely on the stage by themselves. But so that, that was, that was their call in terms of being low risk, but the Metropolitan Opera went all out with the fire shut up in my bones 
written by Charles Blow, and that, that's how they opened up spectacularly to represent the African-American uh, cry, cry for justice and for recognition. So it was, uh, that there are choices that all arts institutions can make about representation. Yeah. And if you, since you are doing art critiques, it's, you're in a really good position, Richard Chang, to talk about, it's not, representation isn't checking boxes. Representation is bringing all the flavors to the, the culture buffet. Where it's like, there's so much talent that is not recognized when the, the sort of white defaults are booked into the performances and installations. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of different, you know, if we're talking about theater and specifically a lot of uh, theaters have had to struggle with what's safe to present, you know, and, and a lot of uh, theaters have done very um, stripped down one man shows or just a couple of people, you know, there's a Jeffrey Lowe, a UCI alum. He's now artistic director at theater works, Silicon Valley. And uh, as people and uh, theater houses were emerging from uh, the pandemic, he directed, uh, I guess it was a two person play called, no, it was a one man play, sorry, uh, called Hold These Truths, which was um, a play uh, written by Gene Sakata about a real person, Gordon Hirabayashi, a Japanese American who resisted incarceration during World War II fought the executive order that ordered all Japanese on the West Coast to go to internment camps. You know, I mean, it was, a, I think it was resonant with the climate that we were in to talk about subjects like that. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to uh, criticize South Coast Rep too much, but I, again, I thought it was a little, a little tone deaf to, you know, to do a one-man play by the artistic director of, of SCR. But, you know, there were alternatives and there were other other productions that I thought were noteworthy. Well, Richard, when I was talking about the tectonic plates shifting under our feet, and I mentioned pedagogically and the uh, Hirobayashi, or I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, that that is, he, he was such an important figure in the, in the kind of, I think it was, he did not make the loyalty pledge. He refused to pledge loyalty in, in a way that it compromised his sort of uh, understanding of what, the way the American democracy works. So it's a kind of, it's a pedagogical lesson that Richard, that Jeffrey Lowe was bringing to patrons that it's so important. And so it's sort of like, while people are taking these messages, let's keep giving them more to chew on now. It's so opportunistic of him and important. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, every, every group is, is, having a moment of reconsideration and, you know, especially among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, we've been having to deal with hate crimes and hate speech. And just, I mean, there was, there were some moments where it was just visceral, you know, and it was like, I was, I wasn't afraid to go out, but I was very conscious of like this hate that was out there. And I just, you know, it was, it was very disturbing, you know, and like it, it, you know, for someone who's Asian American himself, you know, to, to have to deal with, I mean, you know, we're Americans. Why should we be the subject of, of hate? Why, why 
are we being singled out? That that's you know these these thoughts just kind of they they just kind of bother us a little. And and you know we, we it was a time to speak out. It was a time to you know to represent. You know we're we're Americans. We've built this country just like everyone else has. We belong here. You know we've been here for hundreds of years. What's the what's the big deal? You know why? I um, I just think it's the it's the legacy of the, of our previous administration that still seems to be um, you know uh, having an influence on a lot of people's minds. And you know it's not that it's not just the previous administration. There's been generations of of uh, hateful thinking, but it's just you know. We, we, we battle that with speaking out and with creating productions that address these matters. And I think that was, that was part of the climate and part of the context. And again, you know, I don't want to single out SCR again, but I think it's important to be cognizant of, of, of um, the way the social tides are, are shifting. And it seems to me to your, all your points that every time you put another white disposition into a performing arts kind of setting it's sort of it keeps building that default that it, it may it intensifies it and that it sort of makes it harder and harder for that all of the elements of our you know our diverse society that are that need to be to be experienced and understood and 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 known i agree so that's the whole, that's the point of exercise. Well, I'm closing the interview with that unwieldy exercise of you looking into, I mean, we've already sort of started looking into the future and, we, and we're, talk, we're acknowledging the uncertainty of the Omicron phase, uh, the mutation in the, the COVID virus now. And so I'm just taking what we're saying about representation and uh, what we're missing and um, certain technical finesses and cultural adaptations. What might you be looking forward to, Richard Chang, into the future for graphic performance arts entertainment? I mean, we're in a golden age of television, but, but you and I were talking, you and I, I think, share that we're not real TV viewers. We've got plenty of other work to be doing, but what kinds of artistic media that you're seeing in the future is something that you're intrigued by? Well, you know, that's, that's a big question. Um, the times are, times are a little hard to read right now. Right now, as we're speaking, I think is, is it a little bit of a scary moment, but I think in the coming months, hopefully we'll, get over this Omicron variant and, and um, you know, uh, be able to survive this whole coronavirus catastrophe. Um, the Orange County Museum of Art is, is opening a new museum in, in the Segerstrom Center. Um, and that's, and in, that's in the year after this next year. It it's, can't be ready in 2022, is it? It's scheduled to open October 8th, 2022. So in one gestation period from this recording. Yeah. So yeah, they are opening in the new, in the coming year. Um, they did push it back a bit. I think the original opening was 2021, but they're opening in 2022. Uh, I've been through the, they had a hard hat tour. I've been through that. It, it's looking pretty good. I think that 
they're definitely keeping um, in mind certain important issues like open space, being environmentally conscious. You know, I, I, I trust that they'll do a pretty good job with that. I've, I've been following them for many years and I think they have a good uh, new leader right now, CEO and director, Heidi Zuckerman. They've hired some new staff over there. The building's designed uh, by Morphosis, which is um, a respected Culver City firm uh, led by Tom Payne, who's a Pritzker Prize winner. That's something to look forward to. You know, it's a tough question. I, I, I think um, when we get over this period of uncertainty, the Sagerstrom Center will be back. Live theater, live dance, live music will be back. Yeah, it's a little, things are a little uncertain right now, but I'm, I'm, I think uh, we'll eventually be back uh, and going out to events and stuff. I look forward to a little bit of time where I can be reading some, some books that I've been collecting. I've, I've got uh, a book called Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner, which I think uh, is a great book, a fantastic book. And I haven't had time to really, really sink into it, but maybe I will. And um, I also have the book Claire and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro, a Nobel Prize winner that I want to read. And then an, another memoir, Beautiful Country, which is about a, um, a very accomplished Chinese-American lawyer who is working, you know, I, be- I believe she worked for pretty high-level immigration issues and even for one of our administrations. But she herself wound up revealing that she was an undocumented immigrant herself, even though she went to like extremely prestigious law schools. So, you know, I don't, we're, things are a little uncertain, but I'm, I'm, you know, looking forward to the literary arts seem to be as strong as ever. And um, we have a new museum coming. And, you know, I, I again, I, I would think that once things calm down, settle down, we'll be able to get out there and see for ourselves what's going on. So I'm, I'm going to just take a scenario to look into the future, what I'm missing very much that I can see potential with the opening of the Orange County Museum of Art with the things pre-pandemic, they had some amazing lectures and really interesting installations that I, I could just, I could walk people virtually through those that they were so vivid to me. But when I interviewed Terry Dwyer before his resignation as the director of the Sagerstrom Performing Arts Center, he said, I mentioned an event and he said that was his favorite ever night ever at the Performing Arts Center. And I'm getting to the point about the future here with you, Richard, is that with the art museum there opening up that to Terry Dwyer's enjoyment, he said his favorite night was a collision of a free event. I think Culture Clash was performing in Santa Cecilia open for them. And then people, the ticket holders were leaving the Sagerstrom concert hall, the collision of those two different kinds of groups were what made Terry Dwyer absolutely elated. And that I, my having mentioned that as an example was something he related to. So I'm gonna go with you, Richard, is that the combination of the museum patrons colliding with somebody following the free performance on that patio area and ticket holders leaving the 
the concert hall that we're going to have some nice collisions ahead of some very happy cultural patrons. That's where I see the future headed for Orange County. I hope so. You know, as long as we can abate this coronavirus thing, we'll hopefully have some gatherings once again. You know, I do want to mention one more thing, if, if I may. Um, Pacific Symphony had this program, and I wrote about it for Voice of OC back in October, Symphony on the Go, in which they brought, it was a mobile truck, and they brought musicians out to parking lots throughout the county from, you know, Anaheim and Santa Ana down to Dana Point. Uh, I went to one in Fullerton and it was very enjoyable. Everyone, you know, everyone was like kind of socially distanced, but it was outside and they performed for free. And, you know, they, they described what their performances were. There was a brass quintet. There was a string quartet and the, the music was, was curated and, and devised by the musicians themselves, not like a, you know, not the conductor, Carl St. Clair. Families went out, they had a good time. I think we're going to see more of those kind of things um, where, you know, this coronavirus doesn't seem like it's going to go away tomorrow. So we're going to have to work around that and create events that are safe, that people can enjoy and feel safe at, and that are creative and, you know, maybe even a little more grassroots than sitting in the concert hall. So back to the earlier, the heavy collectors point about creating new spaces for things to happen and bringing those to spaces where people are, that kind of the vigor that that can conjure up is something to look forward to too. I think so. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much. I, and maybe I should let our station manager know that you're, are you interested in appearing on a hall of fame show on KUCI, Richard? <laughs> sure, if you if you guys will let me, I'll, I'll sure. I'm gonna let him. I'll let Kevin Stockdale know that. Well, thank I you, Kevin. Say hi to Kevin for I me. I will do that. Well, thank you for your time today, Richard. I really appreciate this opportunity during a busy season, in a string of busies for you. Happy, happy holidays, and here is to a return to live experience and gatherings of the great stuff we're accustomed to being treated to. Well, thank you, Claudia. Thanks for having me on. Keep up the good work. Happy New Year to you. And yeah, long live KUCI. <laughs> Thanks. My guest was Richard Chang, arts and culture senior editor at The Voice of OC and lecturer in journalism on several college campuses. Next week, I'm bringing Terry Gerstein, workers' rights lawyer, to break down what's essential about labor before, during, and after this pandemic. Next week will also be my last digging out as a separate program. I'll be turning this time slot over to another host who will do their best to bring you worthy programming, as has been my intent since beginning this October 2020. For more than 15 years, Mari Frank, attorney, mediator, privacy expert, radio host, and author, helmed this slot here at KUCI. She moved on to her new life in the opposite corner of the country, where she's continued her work as a family court mediator. I'd like to honor how much she brought to these airwaves about all aspects of privacy and then her later show involving relationships. And now I'd like to wish everyone happy holidays with genuine opportunities to restore yourselves, even as you look at the ever-changing pandemic playbook. 
I don't know a single human who's not adjusted their holiday plans around the havoc wrecked with COVID. Stay safe, be merry, and let your loved ones, your neighbors, your service providers, your you-fill-the-blank know how much you appreciate them. If you miss a show or a portion of one, you can always get them either at KUCI or at my website, askaleader.com. Talk with you next week, and I thank you for listening. Thank you.